welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. In this episode, we're going to talk about the crime drama classic, Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption. The plot of this film, in 1947 Portland, Maine, banker Andy Dufresne is convicted of murdering his wife and her golf pro lover and is hastily sentenced to two consecutive life sentences at the Shawshank State Penitentiary. He forms a friendship with Red, experiences brutality of prison life, adapts, turns the prison inside out over a 19-year period before ultimately escaping. What an incredible film. I'm very uh, happy to be doing this with you. Uh, this is just one of my all-time favorites and one that's been a long time coming for this podcast. Uh, let's jump right into it. It's based on the Stephen King novella 1982's Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. I want to briefly call out that that is a, a again a novella. It was part of a four-part uh, novella series called Different Seasons that Stephen King released. Three. Also featured Amped Pupil, another uh, short story in that collection that went on to be adapted into a feature film. That's correct, as well as one called The Body, which ended up becoming Stand By Me. So three of the four in that collection have become, were actually were made films in the 90s. The fourth one is called The Breathing Method, and for years and years it was regarded as being unfilmable. Apparently there is one in the works to be released in 2020. Whether that, com- well, whether that comes to be, who knows? There's no cast or crew, a crew or anything, just a, a director, Scott Or it Derrickson. could just be stuck at production hell. Exactly, yeah. So um, so let's, again, jump into what we're here to talk about, the Shawshank Redemption. This was adapted by Frank Darabont. He bought the, the film rights from Stephen King for $5,000. He had uh, experience working with King in the past when he was a, a film student, he made the short film The Woman in the Room back in 1984, and Stephen King famously would sell up-and-coming directors the film rights to his works for $1. So he ended up, that's how he kind of got his name out there, and when he was ready to work on a feature, he went back to King's works. So that being said, it did go through some screenwriting uh, issues, which we'll get to in a moment, but first, let's talk about the differences between the novella of King and the film itself. And with a lot of film adaptations of books, there tends to be a lot more differences than similarities. Uh, We've discussed that with other adaptations where it's a different medium. Certain things are going to work in the film that didn't work in the book and vice versa. But with this uh, particular adaptation, it was very faithful to the novella. More similarities than differences. Uh, The biggest similarity was the dialogue uh, uh, in particular, the court case uh, when he's being sentenced to the life sentences, all the dialogue exchange is almost verbatim from the book uh, that's in the film. And a lot of the main events are the same and they happen in the same chronological order. Well, that was one of the things that King really liked about Darabont and uh and the studios did as well is that whenever he would adapt for a screenplay, he was very, very good at staying true to the material, but making it work for a feature film mm-hmm. uh, or for the, for the screen. There were the, the biggest differences are just more like details, like in the book, he, in the, excuse me, I should say the novella, he's incarcerated for 27 years. 
whereas in the film, it's 19 years. Well, the biggest difference is the characters, uh, their actions, behaviors, and uh, more specifically, the warden. In the book, there's three wardens that preside over the Shawshank Penitentiary. In the film, of course, we've only got one. And, and again, that's a common thing, too, when you're making a movie. You Composite. Com- combine characters into Composite one. Composite character, yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, one huge thing that Darabont added that was not in the novella is the rehabilitation scene. Uh, with Red at the end of the film. That is not in the book, and that's one of... You're talking about the reuniting scene? No, 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 where he's going up for parole, and he talks about the meaning of the word rehabilitate. Well, the the reuniting scene wasn't in there either, where Red and Andy are reunited. Uh, Darabont wanted to just end it with the hope they would reunite, which I think is more... truthful to the vision and the story and theme of the film as where the producer, uh, Liz Glotzer, uh, pushed for the recruit, the reuniting scene. Uh, Darabont thought it was going to be sappy. So, but after a test screening, he was ultimately convinced to go ahead and add it in there. So it may have been something that was a reaction to the test audience. Interesting enough, the, the studio pushed and said, hey, we're going to fund you to film that scene, but we'll give you final cut. You don't have to include it if you don't want to. And then after he saw how test, you know, like you mentioned, reacted to it, he felt that that payoff was cathartic for an audience to to get that and see the fulfillment of what these characters have gone through. And I, personally, I think it works. It makes me tear up every time I watch it. So I, I get it does. But yeah. when I watch it, I think you don't need to see it. You kind of already know that's what's going to happen. Eh. It, it works either way. I, I think it's one of those things where it doesn't hurt the film to have it or not have it in there. Uh, personally, I, you know, I, see, I, I think it's leave. almost become cliche now to not have it in there. Like actually, uh, yeah, having I mean, that, like if it was know. made now, they wouldn't because the nowadays filmmakers like to leave it more up to the audience, kind of like Christopher Nolan with the ending of Inception. Exactly, so, that's what uh, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, filmmakers nowadays and audiences are more skeptical than ever. You tend to kind of leave it more up to them. Uh, but back then, you know, they had it in there and it does work. So I'm not knocking it. Uh, Another big difference, uh, and it's again deals with the warden, is how Andy gets revenge on the warden. Uh, the warden in the in the novella resigns and surrenders to the police. In the film, you know, he locks himself in his office and, as we know, commits suicide. Well, that was the thing in the novella. Even though he is terminated or leaves his job, and so does Captain Hadley, nothing really ever happens to them. Like, and that that would be probably more truthful to real life. Is that yeah, you know they're charged with corruption or they're you know implicated with, with corruption, but nothing actually happens to them because of the position that they're in because they have ties to law enforcement and a prison, um, and that actually mm-hmm. seems more truthful than the ending that well, especially you, back then yeah, exactly yeah the good old yeah. boy system and whatnot yeah one one difference that I found fascinating uh, that in the novella there is a period of eight months where Andy has a cellmate. And it's after he's already started to, you know, dig the tunnel. Of course, it's he he starts very early on into his sentence, mm-hmm. and his cellmate would always complain of how cold it was in that cell. But they the book the novella never gives it away as to why it's cold until the end when you realize that it's more just like a a little foreshadowing that's dropped in there that the reader doesn't get. Yeah, it, that's funny because that's something you would have in the book but not have in the movie. Precisely, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense to have it in the book because it's just more immersive in, in putting the reader uh, in that world. Uh, fair to say Stephen King's favorite adaptation of his work, which is funny considering earlier this season we 
broke down uh, his least favorite adaptation of his work in The Shining for our Halloween episode. Yeah, he has said uh, this one I think he calls out as his favorite uh, along with Stand By Me. Yeah, a little Easter egg that correlates The Shining uh, and The Shawshank Redemption that connect the two. In The Shining, the room is 237 in The Shawshank Redemption. Andy Dufresne's cell is 237. That's right, yeah. And then furthermore, another tie-in is that in Stand By Me, a character gets changed back of $2.37. So Mm. uh, another tie-in there. So uh, let's shift back to the way that the film got made. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Darabont purchased the rights from King. That was in 1987. He would actually sit on the rights for five years before he began working on the script itself. It took him eight weeks to write the script, and pre-production began in January 1993. He submitted the final draft to Castle Rock, and two weeks later, they greenlit the film with a $25 million budget. And this script was a hot commodity in Hollywood. It had buzz. Everyone was talking about it. We'll cover this on the casting what ifs but a lot of stars were salivating at the opportunity to star in the film they they wanted to be involved with the production of this movie i'll give a a little uh, a little tidbit right now one of them was the co-founder of castle rock entertainment rob reiner he offered darabont uh two the figures vary but between two to three million dollars because he wanted to direct it and he said hey I'll pay you to let me do it, and you can have whatever project you want to direct, greenlit, you know, you just name it. That's how bad Rob Reiner wanted to do it, and he wanted to do it with Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford. <laughs> I, I think it's one of those things where they just recognize how special it was going to be. I, I just uh, had really kind of deep dive into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on my own, and it was very much the same thing. You know, Kurt Douglas passed it down to Jack, uh, to uh, Michael Douglas, and they, they'd been trying to get the movie made for years, but they just knew it was going to be special when it came together. And, and you got to think they felt the same, uh, the people involved felt the same way with this movie. Absolutely, and that's why Reiner felt that passionate about it, and he wanted to be involved so much that he did end up staying on board and uh, kind of mentoring Darabont, since that was his first uh, full feature, uh, and Darabont has gone on to saying he he was worried he was going to get fired, and that Rob Reiner would do it anyway because that's you know they had the power to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, fortunately that that didn't happen. Yeah, thank God it didn't happen. Uh, filming commenced June 1993 and ran through August 1993 in Mans. Field, Ohio, and they. This was a strenuous production schedule: eighteen-hour days, six-day work weeks. Uh, tension was very high amongst the cast, crew, and the director. Some of which that the actors will still not talk about to this day. Uh, citing Morgan Freeman uh, in particular, who during an interview declined to answer questions about it. So it was a, a, a tenuous subject for him to want to get into. Well, one of the more famous stories out and widespread stories out there and again you don't know what's word of mouth what's actually true but the scene where uh, Dufresne and Red talk about um, you know your man I heard your man they can get things and they're in Red's throwing baseball apparently that scene and that exchange took nine hours yeah. to film just take after take after take so much so that Freeman showed up the next day with his arm in a sling now whether that was really needed or he was injured or it was just more of a, a principle and showing it, hey, this is what you can do to your actors if you overwork them like that. Mm-hmm. Or he's taking a stand in that sense. We'll never you know. You almost have to think, Derek, it's just a young director, inexperienced, probably wasn't the most efficient guy on set. We all remember the stories of Spielberg in his early days before he really kind of mastered it on Raiders. 
So you got to think his heart was in the best place, but uh, just had a hard time working on a film of this scale for the first time. Uh, that absolutely has got to have a lot to do with it. And Darabont himself has said this was a great learning experience and how much he did learn through through making the film. So you're going to you're going to make those errors. Yeah. 90 percent of the film or I'd almost say 98 0.5% all except the very ending on the beach are shot at the Ohio State Reformatory, uh, which is standing in for the Shawshank Prison. The Shawshank Prison features prominently in other Stephen King works. I, I do think it's interesting how he creates this universe, much like Quentin Tarantino does with his films or Kevin Smith does with his movies, where despite them being separate works, they all exist in the same world. Well, he's created this universe in his mind, so he just, I'm going to go to this, just like the real world, you can go to, you know, Los Angeles, California, or, or New York, or Kentucky, and you can, you have different stories and different characters everywhere that you go, and that's the world that exists across multiple timelines with King, so it makes sense that he would pull from that, that, that world that he has built. And, you know, the Shawshank Prison, one of the things featuring throughout his universe of, of books and films uh, is, you know, the reformatory they shot at had been closed for two years. And because production selected it to shoot the movie in, it ended up delaying the destruction of the facility for uh, another couple of decades. They didn't end up tearing it down until 2016. Well, it's not entirely torn down. They did leave the administrative building and two cell blocks intact. Uh, that you can actually uh, think, believe, still, still visit. Um, so yeah, that that prison itself, though, was uh, I should say, used as a prison. The reformatory itself was used because of the Gothic architecture, how much it fit the religious overtones of the warden. It just, and if you watch the movie, knowing that you look at that prison and you haven't seen anything like it, it does feel it's a very, character in the movie. It is very much yeah, so. much like the uh, the building in Die Hard. You know, it's it's a fabric of the film and and, and makes it tick. Couple things uh, that they changed whenever they were shooting. Originally, during the escape, uh, Dufresne was going to run across a field and jump on a train, but then they realized, hey, we're gonna have to do all this in one night, so they cut it down to the shit tunnel and then you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah to the stream. And speaking of that stream. They had a chemist run some tests on it before they shot, and that water was deemed uh, toxic, like very lethal. Toxic. No, it was deemed lethal. Right. So lethal amount needless, of bacteria. Needless to say, given that it was on farmland, you got a lot of, you know, livestock that are dumping very bad things into that stream. Bernard! I hate Bernard! <laughs> uh, so they did have um, it chlorinated they had it kind of flushed and damned so that they could kind of clean it up a bit to the point to where eventually tim robbins did end up getting in that stream it seemed to work out okay for him but that yeah. water initially was very very bad yeah you got to be thinking tim robbins is like morgan freeman got nominated for the oscar i crawled through 500 yards of shit man well this is the stream this is the water that he comes out in the shit tunnel so to speak that he goes through was manufactured oh, just for okay, the so shot. he did both, which even further supports my point. Well, listen. <laughs> okay, so in the, the, the tunnel, it was a mixture of water, sawdust, and chocolate syrup. So not too bad. Got to talk about Thomas Newman's score for this film. One of the my favorites of all time. I mean, just it's subtle and nuanced, but memorable and moving all at once. 
Uh, believe it or not, he actually did have trouble composing the, uh, this score because it was difficult to nail what was needed for the film. Uh, you know, initially, he came at it, he was oh, almost, he felt like he was overdoing it. It was taking away from what you were seeing on the screen. He didn't want it to be overbearing, uh, which, you know, as much as I love Zimmer, you know, you watch like example Man of Steel, you know, there's times where the score is just bombastically loud and can be distracting. So I think with a movie that had as much heart and humanity as Shawshank did, it was important to him not to contaminate that experience for the moviegoer. Right. It was a less is more. In this case, it really paid off and that less was a lot more. I'll give you an example. So during Andy's escape, when he's going through the tunnel from his cell and then he's banging the rock on the tunnel, uh, you do hear a score there and it originally was a three note motif, a motif being a, a theme of, of music that is played over throughout a score that you keep coming back to. It's almost like a certain style or the kind of the, the, the core of the theme itself. So that three note motif Darabont heard that and he's like, Hey, no, it's too much. Let's tone it back a bit. So it became a one note motif. So if you listen to it, it's real, real subtle, just one note. Now, an example of a three note motif would be from, I'll pull you know, one you'll really like from the dark Knight trilogy. It's actually played in every single one of the three films. Uh, you hear it when the end of dark Knight when the Joker is on the rooftop and, Batman throws them off. It's a funny world we live in. Speaking of which, you know how I got these scars? No. But I know how you got these. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I knew you would like that because it's being the dark night, but that that three notes more triumphant. It's big and it fits for a Batman film, but for the Shaw for Shawshank, it would have been too much. And so that toning it back is really representative of what he did and, and the power of his to the score. power of the moment that it is quiet. One of my favorite things about this score is early on, whenever you first are introduced to Shawshank, when he's riding up in the bus and you have that great uh, overhead shot where you, you see the bus and then it soars over the entire prison and you mm -hmm. see all the inmates gathering towards the gate and you hear the music swelling and then it kind of cuts back down to the bus. So it just, just comes with the bus, goes over the prison, and then back to the bus. So it, you, the score helps you take in the scope. The song scope. is so instrumental in, in, in introducing the audience to what this character, Andy Dufresne, is in store for. It really just creates that uh, reality and this authentic feel to arriving at prison. Yeah, and how, how big of a change that is. Yeah. Um, and then last thing I'll say about the score is that it was so good that it's now used in a lot of trailers, which you, which you hear a lot. You may not know you're hearing it, but a lot of trailers uh, pull score from Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Until they score it and figure it out themselves. It's like a filler score for the trailer until the composer finishes. Because well, you're so the, uh, often trying yeah. to move an, uh, somebody when you've got two, a minute and a half, two minutes for a trailer. And this mm -hmm. is a very moving score. And it's also subtle. It can kind of play in and build up a moment very, uh, very well. Yeah, what I love about the score, aside from the main theme, which we've covered, but uh, 
is there's uh, Thomas Newman did such a great job in creating different tones to the film. Uh, in particular, I think of is the the darkness of Shawshank, uh, the the uh, oppressive life that you would lead there, uh, and this is really personified in the music when Boggs and the threat of rape and violence uh, come around at, at different points early on in Andy's uh, prison term. Absolutely, that that's the. Th- it's subtle, but it's there, just pulling yeah, man, the it emotion. Just like, even when he, you know, he is getting raped, and the camera again, so smart that it pulls back. We don't need to see it. And Morgan Freeman's like, "I wish I could tell you that Andy fought the good fight, and the sisters let him be. I wish I could tell you that, but prison is no fairy tale world. He never said who did it, but we all knew." And it just feels so real in that moment. Like, yeah, that, that's how that shit would go down. Or, it, it, or along those lines. It, it, it has that truthfulness to it. The piano that plays through parts of the movie, where it's more with Brooks and, and, and Red, their day-to-day life after they get out, and it's showing them adjust and at the grocery store, and it's just the everyday ups and downs and struggles of life. And the piano that Thomas Newman has played throughout the, those sequences is really affecting. And the last thing I would say about the score, and it's the second part of the main theme, is is it's really the theme of hope, uh, which is the theme of the movie. Uh, but it's towards the end with Red. It's when he has prevailed where Brooks couldn't, and he's decided he's going to get busy living, and he gets on the bus to go meet Andy. Oh, yeah, there's a, a several of those moments in the movie. That's one of the, the, the great ones there, but where it, like, it kicks something off almost, and it just you have that inspiration, that swell of emotion, that moment behind it, and Newman, just a masterful score for this film. Yeah, uh, and we'll move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Ensemble cast, two Oscar winners, one Oscar nominee, one Emmy winner, and one Emmy nominee. And we'll start with number one on the call sheet, the protagonist of the movie, Tim Robbins as Andy Dufresne. Probably his most known movie, or one of them, uh, right there with Mystic River and Bull Durham. Uh, Before this, Bull Durham was really the biggest hit he had done. And, of course, after this, he would go on to win an Oscar for Mystic River. And most recently has been starring on Hulu's Castle Rock, which is bringing a full circle uh, in the connection to uh, Stephen King and Shawshank Redemption. No, I did not know that. I need to watch that show. I didn't know he was in it. That's cool. Yeah, um, and he was cast after Darabont saw him in Jacob's Ladder, that really dark horror film. Yeah, that was, uh, I remember that was one of our dad's favorite, and he would try to get me to watch it, and I, it would always scare the shit out of me. It took me like three attempts of watching that movie before I actually got through with it. It It is a it is a twisted, very dark horror yeah. movie it's, one, it's of, one of his replay value favorites uh, for sure in uh, preparing for the role you know Robbins interviewed prisoners guards he spent an afternoon shackled in solitary confinement which I thought was interesting uh, and he also observed cage animals so just a, a few different things he did to try to get in the right mindset uh, in, in playing Andy Dufresne at Shawshank a few what ifs as one I mentioned earlier um for the part of Andy Dufresne, Tom Cruise was considered Kevin Costner, but he would end up doing Waterworld instead, mm-hmm. even though he really liked the script. Uh, it's a really a Everybody who's, did, yeah. Yeah, it really a who's who's. You have Nicolas Cage, Johnny Depp, uh, Charlie Sheen, Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood, and of course, Tom Hanks, who, who would end up winning uh, an Academy Award 
that same year for Forrest Gump. Yes, pick of the litter coming off Philadelphia because they offered him the role of Andy Dufresne. And he would he would have made a great one, and he did up did end up going to work on a prison film uh, inspired by a Stephen King work in The Green Mile. And directed by Frank Darabont, no less. Exactly, yes. Got to talk about Bob Gunton as Warden Norton, the antagonist uh, of the film. 138 credits, mostly television, and I would say no doubt he is most known for Shawshank Redemption. This movie is a defining role of his career. Uh, he was filming Demolition Man during the audition process, and <laughs> they wanted him in the movie. So long story short, uh, he screen tested with Tim Robbins, and Roger Deakins actually shot it on his day off and submitted the tape for consideration, ended up booking the role. Yeah, and I think it, you know he didn't have the hair for it, so they were kind of worried about that as far as it matching the ward, but and clearly it did end up working out. But that's- He actually wore a wig during the audition and then continued to wear the wig through filming until his real hair grew out or grew back. And you know, thankfully so. I mean, he's just the, the perfect warden. A very difficult recasting, which we'll, we'll get to later. Most recently starred in 24, one of our favorite TV shows of this century, and the elementary uh, TV series with uh, Lucy Liu and Johnny Lee Miller. Before this, he was on the Miami Vice TV show back in the 80s uh, and a couple Oliver Stone films, Born on the Fourth of July and JFK. And then uh, I want to mention Tommy. Uh, that was in the film The Young Guy. That was originally going to be played by Brad Pitt. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, who he ended up dropping out because this. He came also out. dropped out of Apollo thirteen, man. Brad, Brad. Oh, wow. uh, I don't think he has any regrets, but he definitely missed two really good movies in the mid nineties: Apollo thirteen and Shawshank. The role of Tommy was small, uh, and Gil Bellows that ended up becoming his film debut, I believe. But uh, Brad Pitt had come off of Thelma and Louise. So, which has starred Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins' His wife. star got too big between yes. the time he agreed to do this and the time it was going to shoot, so he dropped out. Exactly. That's what it yeah. was. Yeah, okay. That uh, makes and, sense. And then uh, I, I have to mention Clancy Brown, one of my favorite character actors. Uh, just a great That's Captain. Captain Hadley. Yeah, what an asshole. Uh, but they asked him, uh, they had a, a liaison that went between you know real-life prison guards and reformatory guards. And the actors asking, you know, helping them research the roles. And they were like, hey, do you want to talk to some real Ohio reformatory guards? And he's just like, hey, have you read this script? No, because if, if I, I don't want anyone to watch the performance of this asshole and think that it was inspired by a real person. And you shouldn't either. So he, that was all him. He didn't get any real life inspiration. He took one of the words that were on the paper and made it his own. That's I a mean, noble just, approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, he has a great point. And, but he's, yeah, he does. Fantastic performance. I and again, that probably out. his most known role, defining role of his career. When you think of uh, Clancy Brown, you think of Shawshank. Uh, yeah, he was re- to- recently in an episode of The Mandalorian. Yeah, and he was in Billions, uh, uh, Showtime's drama. He was in Thor Ragnarok. He was in Starship Troopers, which we'll probably get around to uh, at some point on the show. And he was in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs most recently. So he's been working nonstop since Shawshank. And he, what I thought was funny is he would go on to play a guard again in The Hurricane starring Denzel Washington, which is personally my favorite Denzel performance. And you would think Clancy Brown would avoid playing a prison guard because of how memorable and defining his role was in Shawshank. So I thought that was surprising. It is, but, I mean, great character actor. So, I mean, He's going to do what the role requires and what's uh, put in front of him there. William Sadler is Haywood real quick. Uh, I would say he's probably most known for being the main bad guy in Die Hard 2, although you think of him in this. Uh, also, I think what he's most known for, the Grim Reaper and Bill and Ted. Excellent! 
and he would go on to star in the all three Darabont Stephen King adaptations, Green Mile and The Mist, in 2007. Uh, and then lastly, I have to mention this just because I finished the film prepping for this podcast. I'd seen it numerous times, but I don't think I'd ever really paid attention to the credits. And I, and I just so happened to glance down middle of the, the cast order uh, there and somebody was credited as fat ass. And I was like, Oh yeah. The, the, the person that, you know, the, the, the inmate, the fish that yeah. dies early on in the film. And I was like, they don't give him a name. His actual, IMDB credit is fat ass. And that oh, actor's name man. is I'll appease Andy Dufresne who asked what his name was. That actor's name is Frank Madrano. And he has been a working actor. Just typically one episode. He's great in the movie. Oh, he is. Yeah. Uh, a very underappreciated scene that he does, but I think it's uh, very powerful communicating to the audience how most people would handle that situation. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to shout, shout out that he does have a name. It's not just fat ass. Got to talk about Morgan Freeman as Ellis Boyd, Red Redding, uh, the favorite film of his own career, and the first time he ever narrated or did a voiceover in a film, and now he's considered the GOAT uh, uh, of doing it uh, amongst all the working actors. Yeah, I mean, the perfect narration voice. Uh, that's was the biggest challenge recasting that role. Is like, okay, who could play the part, and then who also could be a great narrator? Yeah, it's tough. Um, was casted off the recommendation of producer Liz Glotzer, and she ignored the race of the character in the novella. Red was a white Irishman, hence the name Red. And they make a funny pun on that uh, in the film when uh, Andy asks why his nickname's Red. He goes, I think it's because I'm Irish or something. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a knock at the uh, novella there. Um, well, his last name was also Redding, so... Yeah, yeah. So you could, yeah, you could go either way there. But uh, Morgan Freeman, that this film was lucky to have him five Oscar nominations and was nominated for best actor in a leading role for this movie. The only actor nominated for Shawshank Redemption. Uh, 127 credits. You know, before this, he had done Driving Miss Daisy, Glory, Unforgiven. So I mean, he'd already been in some really big movies. Uh, after this, of course, we all know he continue to have a prolific career seven the dark knight trilogy and would win an oscar and million dollar baby and this easter egg is what i thought was interesting tim robbins and morgan freeman both would ultimately win oscars acting under the direction of clint eastwood in two separate films that is a very cool easter egg i never would have put that together but yeah that's that's great one of the crazy parallels in the movies um and even though he won the oscar for Million Dollar Baby, it could be argued he should have won for Shawshank Redemption. And that is why Morgan Freeman is my MVP as Ellis Boyd Red Redding, the prison fixer. Uh, a very honest and truthful performance from Morgan Freeman. It's subtle. It's communicated in the way he walks and talks, and it defines who the character is. As we mentioned, his voiceover work, top-notch. Uh, in this film and the first time he'd ever done it, which is all the more surprising with how effective it is, that assuring voice uh, really uh, works in the narrator role. Uh, this role led to his typecast as an honorable, likable character, and th most of the characters he plays fit that archetype. He would end up going on to play God and Bruce Almighty, so... Yeah, I mean, he brings authority and gravitas to his roles. Um, and I think with his casting in this movie, it's a perfect storm of an actor playing just the right character at just the right time. And as I mentioned, he was nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars that year, lost to Tom Hanks for Forrest Gump. Other nominees that year, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction, 
Paul Newman and Nobody's Fool, and Nigel Hawthorne in The Madness of King George. So pretty stacked in the category that year, uh, you know, with three other movie stars. And a great demonstration of the arc of his character and what he goes through from the beginning till the end of the movie is watch the first parole hearing about seven minutes into the movie and then watch the last parole hearing right – there's like ten minutes left in the movie. And the difference in his behavior – uh, you know, the first one, he's eager. It's kind of a bullshit car salesman type behavior. He just tell them what they want to hear. And then that last parole hearing, he has zero fucks to give, and he's authentic and truthful, and he ends up getting out. And, and, but when you see the difference of how he's acting, Andy has changed. This beacon of light has come through his life and has changed the way he looks at the world. And it, it, it's communicated with those two scenes. They even actually show you uh, a, 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 there's three parole hearings. They actually show you one in the middle of the movie, about an hour in, and he, he's acting the same way he did in the first uh, parole hearing. But you get to see that at the end, the, the change uh, that Morgan Freeman has playing Red, and it, it's award-winning level acting. Uh, it's it's top-notch. Talk about the stats and accolades of the Shawshank Redemption released September 23rd, 1994 in 33 theaters. Uh, with a first weekend pull of $727,327, which is actually pretty good for, for 33 uh, screens. Uh, its widest, or one of its widest releases, its first, I guess you could call it wide release, was in October 14th. It bumped up to 944 theaters. Uh, it would never break 1,000 screens. Uh, that first real true wide opening weekend, it pulled in 2.4 million it was ranked like uh not e- it wasn't even in the top 10 of uh, of openings for that weekend so quite the blockbuster disappointment as it would only go on all the way around yeah off of the budget we mentioned earlier of 25 million it did pull domestically in its original theatrical run of uh, 28.3 million so quite the disappointment it only made $86,000 internationally uh, yeah so uh, this was a, a flop. It had three re-releases, once after it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, then once in 2004 uh, celebrating the 10-year anniversary, and then once in 2019 celebrating the 25th-year anniversary, uh, which has uh, brought, brought up its box office uh, proceeds. Uh, still, I mean, nothing great. I mean, a lot of um, – that's not where it made its, uh, its buzz and its, uh, its critical, you know, I guess its audience – critical enjoyment. Well, its audience was from the home video and VHS release because with the award buzz and how good the movie was, and despite the shit box office, Warner Brothers shipped out 320,000 VHS copies in the United States, and it ended up being one of the most popular rentals in 1995 as a result. So this movie uh, uh, owes a large part of its uh, afterlife success to to its home video release and and its cable repeated airings. It really... Gives a lot of has to give a lot of credit to the Oscar buzz. That's where people are like, "Hey, mm-hmm. wow, look at this yeah. movie! It got nominated for all these awards." That's what got Warner Brothers to relook its uh, distribution to the to the home media market. Yeah, but everybody was making excuses for why it didn't do well. The the title wasn't good. It was about it's another prison movie, and it just wasn't marketed well. And then you know. Well, I mean, so, it was two hours and 22 minutes, which is a really, I mean, movies nowadays tend to be two and a half or three hours. But back then, that was considered, even then, a really long movie. And the initial cut was over two and a half hours. I mean, they had to cut this thing down. Uh, they, they cut a lot of sequences, in particular, Red uh, adjusting to prison life. They felt like a lot of that was redundant. They didn't need it. 
and they even had some unfilmed scenes they didn't do uh, that Darabont wanted to film. So uh, for such a short story, they had a lot of material they were trying to cram in this movie. And if you look at the way that it is now, though, there's it's two hours and what 22 minutes, but there is not an ounce of fat on this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. every scene is necessary. So Yeah. Uh, scores of the film, uh, IMDb 9.3, uh, Metascore 80, uh, Tomato Meter 90% off 71 critics, certified fresh rating, and a cinema score of A. Generally positive reviews despite the, the shit at the box office. Um, a lot of the... Uh, Critical acclaim was directed towards a director of photography, Roger Deakins, and his work on the film, which he would end up earning his first Oscar nomination uh, it, for his work uh, in Shawshank. And it would be, what, 23 years later until he won for Blade Runner 2049. So that, really? that journey oh. was kicked off. Roger Deakins' uh, Oscar journey, which he's the most you know Oscar-nominated cinematographer in history. Uh What's most surprising, though, seven Oscar nominations, zero wins. It didn't win anything. Yeah. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Screenplay, Best DP, Cinematographer, as we just mentioned, Roger Deakins, Best Sound, Best Editing, Best Music, a lot of the big categories, and it just came up in empty-handed. Well, it lost uh, Best uh, Score to uh, Lion King that year, which I thought was, was good. Yeah. I mean, how Fair are you going to beat that? You know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, nominated for two Golden Globes was the only Oscar Best Picture nominee not to be nominated for Best Picture at the Golden Globes. Another 21 wins and 33 nominations, mostly from city film circles and film societies. It did, however, receive one Grammy nomination, Thomas Newman's score. And it also lost that to The Lion King. Hmm. Hmm. Zimmer cleaned up that year. Uh, movies of the Year, 1994 films, Pulp Fiction, Speed, Lion King, Dumb and Dumber, and the Best Picture winner, Forrest Gump, all of which we covered in the first season of Replay Value. Uh, TV shows of the year, number one, Nelson Ratings, Seinfeld, number two, ER, number three, Home Improvement, and at the 47th Emmy Awards, uh, the comedy series winner, Frasier, and the drama series winner, NYPD Blue. Songs of the year, Billboard number one, and it was the longest-running number one single of the year, I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. I'm Ron Burgundy. And the Grammy Song of the Year winner, Kiss from a Rose by Seal, which would later be featured in the film Batman Forever. I still remember the music video. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Prices of the year, gas was $1.09, movie ticket was $4.08, and events of the year in 1994, the English Channel is open, joining England and France for the first time. The Tanya Hardy, Nancy Kerrigan figure skating scandal happens. O.J. Simpson flees police and his murder trial starts. The Major League Baseball strike lasted 233 days and the season was canceled. And finally, Brazil wins the 1994 World Cup in the United States. All right, our favorite scenes and lines from the film. I love this. Love it, love it, love it, because this is such a great movie. So many great scenes to choose from. Let's kick things off with your runner-up, Warren. Yeah, the movie, uh, not a lot of action like we've done the past couple episodes. Body count was six total, four on screen, two off. The two off-screen deaths being Mrs. Dufresne and her lover. Uh, And what I got to say about this film, very similar to The Fugitive, which we covered earlier this season, he's convicted six minutes and 37 seconds into the movie, which is faster than The Fugitive. Remember on the, in The Fugitive, he's on the bus headed to prison like 12 minutes in? 
So, I mean, this movie wastes no time in getting him shipped off uh, to the penitentiary. Yeah, originally that was going to be shot to where it was like the opening credits play over that. But like it felt like it was too rushed. So they ended up kind of um, piecing it together where they combined the uh, murder and the court case kind of in, in one. Um, so you kind of kind of see them both together, instead of jump and then jump into that. So uh, it ended up, even though it's fast, you almost need it just like the fugitive. You need it to happen so you can kick off the real plot of the film. Because of that, you know, I feel like this movie really builds to the finish. So my favorite scenes tend to be towards the end of the film. Okay. Uh, most of them, uh, there is an exception. So what's your runner-up? And my runner-up is the exception. My runner-up is the roof job. Uh, mm. Andy gets on Hadley's good side, but he also bonds with his, his fellow inmates. That's it. Step aside, Mert. This fucker's having himself an accident. You don't push him off the roof. Because if you do trust it, there's no reason you can't keep that 35000 What did you say? 35000 35000 All of it. All of it? Every penny. You better start making sense. If you want to keep all that money, give it to your wife. The IRS allows a one-time only gift to your spouse for up to $60,000. Oh, shit. Tax-free? Tax-free. IRS can't touch one cent. You're that smart banker would kill his wife, aren't you? Why should I believe a smart banker like you? So I can end up in here with you? It's perfectly legal. Go ask the IRS. They'll say the same thing. Actually, I feel stupid telling you this. I'm sure you would have investigated the matter yourself. Yeah, fucking A. I don't need no smart wife-killing banker to tell me where the bear's sitting in the buckwheat. Of course not. But you do need someone to set up the tax free gift for you, and it'll cost you. A lawyer, for example. Bunch of ball washing bastards. Right. I suppose I could set it up for you. That would save you some money. If you get the forms, I'll prepare them for you. Nearly free of charge. I'd only ask three beers apiece for each of my co workers. <laughs> co workers, get him. That's rich, ain't it? I think a man working outdoors feels more like a man if you can have a bottle of suds. It's only my opinion, sir. I love that scene because it's really the first time anything happens uh, of any uh, significance in prison with Andy, you know, where he starts to kind of make his mark uh, on Shawshank. And that's where that starts is with that scene. But when you're watching it for the first time, you don't know what's going to happen there. You know, uh, Red's telling people to keep sweet, you know, keep working. And, and you think for sure he's going to get thrown off. And the way Tim Robbins plays it is really brilliant because he feels he only talks when he has to and he holds on to the information he's going to give him until the very last second which builds up the dramatic tension in the scene yeah i i like that almost had that as my runner-up um my only issue is that why did dufresne approach him he knows how hadley is he almost like that it was intentionally made to build up that tension i mean he had to know that he was going to get his ass kicked. I don't know. I just don't know why he approached it that way other than to build tension. It, it, it kind of works because he's so green at being in prison. He doesn't know. That's why Morgan Freeman and all the people that are experienced, you know, they kind of create that. He uh, knows. You know, but even with the, the, the fat ass when he's crying and, you know, uh, uh, you know, William Sadler, Haywood, he's like, come on, man, shut up, shut up. Like they know what Hadley's going to do. And I feel like maybe Andy Dufresne at that point didn't quite know what Hadley was capable of. He's just trying to help him out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it came to pass, that on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in the spring of 49 wound up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock in the morning, drinking icy cold Bohemia-style beer, courtesy of the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. Wake up while it's cold, ladies. And it's good. Yeah, no, I like that. It's a good choice. My runner-up, I had that, and I bumped it down to an honorable mention because I couldn't knock out 
my other my my runner up I did end up choosing and then my winner. My runner up is um the one that I mentioned that Darabont added near the end of the film and that is Red's speech uh at his parole hearing about the meaning of the word rehabilitated. I look back on the way I was then. A young stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him. Tell him the way things are. But I can't. That kid's long gone. and This old man is all that's left. I got to live with that. Rehabilitated. It's just a bullshit word. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Because to tell you the truth, I don't give a shit. In this weird type of way, you could tell he has zero fucks to give, as you so eloquently put it earlier. But he says it in a way where you're just like, yeah, it makes sense why he would get it approved. So it kind of gets both sides of it. The zero mm-hmm. fuck side yeah. and the side where it's a compelling argument and it and, works. And he- you know, Morgan Freeman, again, that's why he's my MVP. He's playing both sides of that at the same time in the scene. So that that is my runner-up, and it just I had to pick that. It's such a yeah. powerful scene. Excellent so choice. Great. I mean, it, it's the the scene that demonstrates Freeman's uh, uh, abilities and and is one of the scenes uh, that probably got him nominated. Yeah. And then my winner is the discovery of Andy's escape. That is also my winner. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. And it's the sequence, right? You know, when uh, the morning after Andy escapes, because the night before they just kind of hint, but we, the audience think, oh shit, he's, is he going to commit suicide? So this whole time we're with red again, living through red. We're, we're wondering and and, and hoping that Andy doesn't kill himself. We kind of have a hunch that he's not going to do that, but the movie's leading us down that path, so you don't really quite know. Is he finally losing hope and going to give up? What I love about it is what you just said. You know, The warden is fuming in Andy's cell, and he's talking about, This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! Including her! And he throws the rock, and then he puts his fist through the poster, rips it off, and then the score kicks in with with Newman, and you then see the police running off to Shawshank, and that's where that sequence really kicks off and begins. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then it shows us how things went down the night before, like where Andy's playing it cool in the warden's office. You know, he gets the shoes to polish them. And, you know, and then even when he's walking back to his cell block, you know, how often do you look at a man's shoes? And then it all, and then it, you know, shows him uh, working his way, you know, uh, uh, through the tunnel system, using the rock with the lightning uh, that you had mentioned earlier with the score, uh, him crawling through the tunnel, and then that triumphant moment in the rain where he's finally free. And we are so happy for this character, and we're, we're experiencing the euphoria with Andy Dufresne. It's pretty obvious why that one's the favorite. It's the best moment of the film. All right, so honorable mentions. Did you have any others you'd like to throw in there? 
Yeah, uh, honorable mention is Red's first impression of Andy. You know, Andy's, and we talked about how awesome the arrival of the prison was, but it's Andy, uh, you know, not giving them a lot to go on, but Red is so convinced that he's going to be the first to crack. You know, he, he bets two packs of cigarettes. So I just like, you know, even when Red's like, I must admit I didn't think much of Andy first time I laid eyes on him. Looked like a stiff breeze would blow him over. That was my first impression of the man. Another honorable mention is uh, Andy locks himself in the warden's office and plays the Mozart song over the speaker system throughout the entire Shawshank Penitentiary. Yeah, I have that as an honorable mention uh, as well. That's a great, great scene. And then my uh, only other honorable mention that I uh, had was them reuniting at the end on the beach. Uh, mm. This the the pure. Uh, joy and the elation and the smile of red that you see yeah. on that beach. And just, you know, you finally get to see the, these characters get the freedom and the redemption that they're seeking. So uh, it was just a, that, 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 that's a great one. It's just a lot, just so many to choose from. It's difficult. We're to not going to mention them all. And my last honorable mention is when Tommy's cellmate uh, reveals to have been the one to kill Andy's wife and her lover it's the intrigue of that moment. We are so engaged as to, holy shit, this is what really happened. And Frank Darabont really seems to use this as a storytelling device in his movies. He would go on to use this in Green Mile, which I think, even though this is the better movie, the twist and reveal in Green Mile is more effective when they show Sam Rockwell is the one that killed those two little girls. Uh, Darabont loves using this uh, way of telling his story, uh, you know, uh, this formulaic uh, reveal uh, and it works. Well, it's an adaptation of King, so isn't it really Stephen King that likes doing that? Shit it. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, all right, so our favorite lines from the film, uh, I'll kick things off with my runner-up, and it was a line by Dufresne when he's talking about, he's basically revealing the the money laundering scam that in the library, he's revealing that what he's been pulling off for the ward, and he's telling Red about it, and he says, you know, The funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man. Straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. Ah! Yeah, that's an honorable mention. Love that line. Almost had it as a runner-up. Uh, my runner-up, and it's when Red is reading the letter that Andy has left him, and he says, Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. I had that as an honorable mention. So we had our runner-up and honorable mention flip-flop there. That's that's good. Well, uh, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. All right, so our winner line, uh, the best quote in the film for me, and it said twice, once by Dufresne, once by Red. Get busy living or get busy dying. That's goddamn right. And that is also my winner. Ah, Twice. Nice. Again? What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. Yes. Uh, and it inspired the Fallout Boy song. So this song has had an impact on pop culture as well. And it's one of the more quotable uh, lines from the film. The most quotable line from the film. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, one, one honorable mention I, I do I did have as well is when Red is talking about uh, Andy escaping and what he did and the rocks and the tunnel and saying that it appealed to his meticulous nature. Uh, mm. I do. My, my wife and I do use that one quite a bit in real life. That's more of a personal quote that kind of spoke to you. That's one of those that's a little more uh, not as well known. Um, a couple honorable mentions. I understand you're a man that knows how to get things. 
I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. You know, it's kind of an introduction to Red, the prison fixer. And then when Warden hands the Bible back to Andy and he says, salvation lies within. And then Andy signs it uh, later on. Yeah, but the rock hammer is in the fucking Bible. So oh, it's, it's literal. Yeah, it's li- your salvation is in this book and he doesn't find the rock hammer. So yeah. I thought that was great. Good symbolism and uh, foreshadowing and all these other writer terms I'm not good at. Uh, all right. Let's recast the film with today's stars over 25 years later. Who would we put in these roles? Uh, let's kick things off with a little bit lower on the call sheet with Boggs Diamond. Who did you have? I went with uh, a little less known of an actor, but certainly memorable if you've seen him in things. And I hope I say his name right, but we know I'm probably not going to. Uh, Celestino Cornelli. He played a DEA agent in Bosch. He was the guy in season five when Bosch comes back from the undercover sting with the uh, the shells. And he also plays uh, an enforcer in Too Old to Die Young. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I do remember that guy from Bosch, that DEA guy that never really takes him seriously until Bosch kind of proves he's the shit. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I do uh, I do like him. As a I feel like he for, can play a prison guard or a prisoner, though. He's really suited to play an inmate. Yeah, but it's like the type of creepy inmate of Boggs where – where Boggs is just like, you know, in the shower scene, he's just like, oh, he's just playing hard to get. He's playing, yeah, it's just hard to get. I like that. You know, I don't know. He's like, that guy, I don't know if he's like got the creep factor. You know, that. Yeah, that you're right. Be, he's almost too cool for school. So my choice was someone, you may not recognize the actor's name, but you'll recognize him when he's been in. Jimmy Simpson. Uh, he yeah, played. Yeah, Westworld. He played yeah, the Young William. Young William in Westworld. He was also. He's also an Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Right. Kind of a creepy character in there, but he's yeah. got a. Very wide range. Of, yeah, that's uh, good, actually. You're going to get that one. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, moving up to Brooks Hatlin. Who did you have? I think I'm going to get this. Uh, I went with two-time Oscar nominee and one-time Emmy nominee, Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern. Man, that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I had a I had a lot of trouble with this, uh, this casting just because it, I, it's such a, a niche role. I was like, okay, you know. Who, who could I pick? Uh, Bruce Dern's great. I mean, you could see the... I, I don't know about the softer side of Brooks that you see. You could definitely see the kind of crazier side when he yeah. holds the, the knife to Haywood's neck. Um, I ended up going with Ian McKellen. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to get that one. Uh, Ian McKellen's a little more dignified, uh, a little too dignified to play Brooks, I think, in my opinion. You know what's well, funny he, is he, that he actor... Just, he just did Cats, so he the dignified uh, scale yeah, From is what I hear, he's one of the few people that keeps his respect in the movie. His his performance is, you know, isn't the problem. Um, well, regardless, I mean, it's, you know, he, he he's a good choice. I just think, yeah, maybe not the best fit for a prison inmate it's tough to see in mckellen as a prisoner but he would be the gentle i think librarian though but you know yeah it is true though it is a bit of a niche casting because the actor that played brooks in the film james whitmore he had already played a prisoner that it was reluctant to leave prison in a film and i can't remember the title but he, he had played this type of character once before a prisoner reluctant to be freed all right well, one-to-one all right tommy uh, i'll take this one first uh you know, you got to have somebody that's kind of young, cool, thinks he knows sh- the shit, but also yeah. someone that's been in and out of several penitentiaries or prisons, jails. So my first choice was uh, Joe Keery from Stranger Things. He is not gritty enough at all. Exactly. So I didn't pick him. I ended up going with Bill Skarsgård. Yeah, I don't know. Bill Skarsgård's almost more appropriate for the uh, the box part, the creepiness. Um, I almost picked him for that, too. Yeah. But- 
Uh, I think I'm going to get this one. I went with Sebastian Maniscalco. Uh, he played Crazy Joe in The Irishman, and he was also in Green Book. Here's the problem. He's a, I like him. He's a good actor. But I think he, for the part of Tommy, he's like a young hot shot. I mean, he's got the new style from like the So 50s. I picked a middle-aged hot shot. Okay. No, you, you can't. But no, that's the kind of the point of the character is that he's kind of a young know-it-all. Yeah, I guess the right type of character, but he's a little too old. So They it, would have plus, to really rewrite yeah, the entire character. He's the right type, though. But Bill Skarsgård, uh, you know, Stephen King, uh, you know, he's plays Pennywise in it. He's in Castle Rock. So it's just the Stephen King uh, connection alone. We'll, we'll give you the nod. So, yeah, uh, phenomenal young actor, though. Like 20 years ago, Sebastian, yeah, takeaway. You would easily crush that one. So, um, okay, Haywood, uh, who did you have? Haywood, I went with three-time Oscar nominee and Emmy winner Mark Ruffalo. That's good. I really like that. Yeah, I. Uh, I mean, you gotta you gotta give someone that keeps it light. Um, but almost you know. someone who could play that at one point he was tough, but it, the the prison is just completely broken him. You know, like Haywood is just a teddy bear that was at one point a convict. He really is. He's a nice guy. Yeah, I, I mean. Ruffalo almost comes off of you seeing Bruce Banner as like too nice, but it'd be a different, obviously a much different type of role. And he's a great actor. He could do it. Um, I did have the same mentality when I was thinking of my Haywood and I uh, chose Woody Harrelson. That's a draw. Yeah. Both are pretty good there. Yeah. Both are great. Yeah. Okay. So I'm up two to one and then we have that draw out there. All right. So uh, moving on up to the more, uh, Prominent stars of the picture, uh, Captain Hadley, the secondary antagonist. Who did you have? An ally to the main antagonist. Uh, I went with uh, two-time Emmy nominee, Walton Goggins, best known from Justified, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, and most recently, The Righteous Gemstones. Damn it. I wanted to pick him, but but I couldn't. So I'm going to get that one. (laughs) you uh, You don't want to hear who I've got? Yeah, I'm going to hear you got it. I'm pretty sure I got it, though. Go ahead. I don't know. This guy's pretty good, too. Michael Shannon. Mm, I'm going to give that to you. I think you got it. Deck gone. I spoke too soon. Stupid moron. Ah, such an idiot. I think he's more appropriate for the villain. I mean, even look at him in Shape of Water. I mean, he can roll out of bed and play this part. So, so cruel, you know. Yeah. Uh, I do love me some Walton Goggins, though. He's a great actor. So, man, I've, I've got a strong lead right now. Three, one, and one. Warden Norton. I'll kick things off with this one. I think you'll like this choice. I chose William, and it's my turn to say a name wrong. William uh, Fitchner. Fickner. He was. Oh yeah, he was in uh, Heat and The Dark Knight. Like yes, the bank manager. The bank manager. Yep. Mm, I'm gonna get this one. I went with Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, no, from, he's uh, per- he's yeah. just the voice perfect, the power of evil, the conviction, and he can just flip the switch on you at a moment's notice. Um, for, you know, most known from Clockwork Orange. And uh, you know what's funny? He's never been nominated for an Oscar. Could not believe that. Really? Not even for Clockwork. It was shocking. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll give you that one. So, damn. All right. Three, two to one. And now we will recast uh, Ellis Boyd Red Redding, uh, one of the leads of the film, uh, played by Morgan Freeman and very difficult to recast. One of the more difficult recastings I would say we've had. It was at first, but when I got it, man, I got it. And I, I you better have be packing a hell of a punch here because I think I got it. Um, I feel like mine's pretty good. I went with Mahershala Ali, two-time Oscar winner. That's pretty uh, good. He can play composed and, and, and characters with a lot of grace and dignity, even if you watch him most recently in Green Book. 
I think he can embody that same walk and talk uh, that Morgan Freeman did in portraying Red. All right. Well, I chose, and I'm packing heat too. That's a great choice. I love Mahershala Ali. That's that's very good. Um, I chose Jeffrey Wright. We're gonna have to start having a judge on the air because these something like this one and uh, and the and the Haywood are just too close to call. We may have to yeah. go draw there. All right, draw it is. So that's what three, two, and two. Man, this really this is one of the tightest races we've had. So it all comes down to really uh, this last one, who who we picked as Andy Dufresne. And uh, I'll go first. Uh, you went first on the last one. Uh, difficult, difficult choice. Yeah, the last one I figured out. Yeah, uh, and. Once I picked it, I was like, man, yeah, it's a little hard to see at first, but I feel like it's perfect for the role. Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm, No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, In the ballpark, but not quite there. Uh, Just a little bit different type of actor uh that would be needed for some of the intangibles that tim robbins embodies and that's on the page with andy dufresne uh i thought of adam driver i thought of him too yes i almost Uh, picked adam driver yeah yeah but i ended up going with oscar tony nominee andrew garfield hmm and i think he's kind of perfect for especially in hacksaw ridge i mean these those characters are cut from the same cloth man that is that's really good. Yeah, he's a great actor. And he the thing is, the difficult thing with Andy Dufresne is you've got to have a character who is mysterious and enigmatic, but at the same time, you believe is innocent the entire time without exactly. question. And a lot of times when you go with mysterious... And Garfield like, embodies that, man. I think yes. I'm going to get this one. Benedict Cumberbatch, I was staying by my, my choice. I think that's a great choice for that role. I do think he would be excellent in that role but i'll give you andrew garfield so we actually ended up tying three three and two yeah okay not about winning or losing it's about passion a couple of quick fan theories i say a couple because none of them out there are really good they all kind of have a couple holes in them that you could poke through (laughs) Uh, and i know i've got to i gotta have bring my a game to you because you'll poke a hole in real quick and i'll I'll tell you the first one which has gotten if you look on the internet it's gotten a lot of um, notoriety and a lot of articles written about it Mm mm-hmm and it is that as Andy Dufresne is actually guilty and that he is just a, so, a sociopath. Whoa. No way. No. So, so here's the here, here's the, the argument for it. All right, you got to win me over on this one. Go. Uh, I know. I, there, there, there is a hole in it, and I'm just going to see if you can find it. All right, so the, the first thing is, is and this is small, but you know, he's obsessed with playing chess, so you know he's a strategist. And they never really follow through on that theme in the film. He talks about he's going to teach Red. He makes the chessboard, but they never actually show him play in chess. The real game of chess is the manipulation that he does along the way. They're talking to Hadley on the roof with the beer, get worming his way into the warden's good graces by learning the Bible. Um, and the thing is, is that everything is told from Red's point of view. So the events of the trial and whatnot, you all you all hear that from as read as the audience so he right away he is an unreliable narrator doesn't it seem a little convenient the circumstances of his false incarceration that they found bullets with his fingerprints on oh yeah he dropped him getting out of the car but that someone would come by that same house 
and murder them that same night, and then they can't find the gun even though they search the river? Well, yeah, because I, you think most people innocent wouldn't have any reason to throw their gun in the water. So the fact that he did that's the very reason he was convicted, because even back in, for, in the 40s, they had ballistics. So if he'd have kept the gun, they would have been able to prove he didn't shoot his wife. Exactly. The biggest hole in it is that Tommy learns about the circumstance learns that he's in for murder and the circumstances directly from red the narrator he would have had no other way to learn that like he doesn't so the 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 theory goes that annie manipulated him but you know even if he did he hears about it firsthand from red for the first time so that's where the hole is well yeah the hole is tommy because he even tells the warden privately just give me that chance so we the audience know and it's very clearly and vividly communicated that without a shadow of a doubt andy dufresne is innocent yeah so that's why i didn't really like that fan theory and then the the one theory that real quickly that i do like that does make sense is that you know the film shows andy uh preparing his escape when he first goes in to carve the name in and that big chunk falls off the theory goes that he was planning his escape from day one and that you that's why he asked for the rock hammer that's why he was stayed up staring at the wall and there's several other things that go along with that to kind of lend itself as soon as he got in there he was thinking of a way to escape and i think that one makes a lot more sense yeah that does hold water because i mean why would he even when he like even the scene they show him uh knock the first chunk of rock out of the wall well plus you know even though he's carving his name you don't know that's where it started because you're just hearing it from red's perspective he really could have had the idea and most likely did from the day he got in there i I buy that one i think uh, much more than i do that he was the psychopath who was guilty the entire time um yeah i I think that's uh, that holds water and we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of the shawshank redemption widely considered to be one of the greatest movies ever which is all the more shocking that we covered that it didn't win any Oscars, and it is considered to be the greatest movie to have never won Best Picture. Right there with Saving Private Ryan. And many feel like, in hindsight, it's like, well, how did Forrest Gump win? Pulp Fiction or Shawshank should have won in 94. And maybe that's true, but you have to have perspective taken, taken into consideration for Shawshank is that no one thought it would win. Forrest Gump was the clear front runner. It is only with time that we have looked back to the great year of movies that was 1994 mm-hmm. and look at Shawshank as if not the greatest that year, you know, definitely neck and neck with Pulp Fiction yep. and one of the greatest films of all time. Well, and funny you mentioned that on the AFI 2007 100 Greatest Movies of All Time list. The Shawshank Redemption ranked number 72 ahead of Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction. Well, there you go. I can't believe it was that low, 72. I figured it would have been higher, but okay. Yeah, you would think so. 72 does seem a little uh, low for the film. Other all-time lists, number one on the IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time. It has held that position since 2008 when it passed The Godfather. They were going back and forth. I don't think um, it's ever been outside of the top five since they have started doing that list. And it's held the number one spot for, for you know, like you said, over a decade now. Yeah. First IMDb title to have 2 million votes. So this title holds a significance uh, w- with IMDb in more ways than one. Uh, it's number one on the must-see movie of all time by listeners of the Capital FM in London. Film is included on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. 
It ranks number 10 on Entertainment Weekly's top 50 cult films of all time. In 2005, the Writers Guild of America listed Darabont's screenplay at number 22 on the 101 greatest screenplays of all time. Ranked number 13 on Film 4's list of top 50 films to see before you die. And finally, it ranked number four on Empire's 500 Greatest Movies of All Time. So some very high rankings on a lot of all-time lists. That's a big part of its legacy is being on so many all-time lists and at a very high spot. But you know, how did it get there? And it wasn't from the theatrical reception, as we discussed earlier. It was from, much like a movie we covered earlier this year, The Wizard of Oz, not received well theatrically. It got its life through viewings on cable television. I think uh, I read that this movie was on TNT or TBS, like over uh, over six days worth of content. That's how much it was played, like 150 something hours. It was crazy. Uh, then yeah, in the, 2013, it had 151 hours of airtime in the on United States channels. That's equivalent to six days and seven hours. Uh, on, on 15 basic channels, it trailed only Mrs. Doubtfire in the most re-aired movie for the year. And then, of course, the VHS sales that we talked about and the rentals. I mean, in 1995, it was one of the top, if not the top, rental or, or VHS tape sold that year. I mean, it was mm-hmm. insane. Yeah, and one of the reasons also you mentioned TNT uh, actually acquired Castle Rock in 1993. So when Shawshank was uh, available to air on cable, TNT owned the broadcasting rights and didn't have to pay to air it. That's why it got it. So it was on, it was aired a, a, an exponential amount of times when compared to uh, other movies. I wonder what they had to cut out to show it on cable, <laughs> probably quite a bit. And maybe that has a lot to do with it, you know, it being received that well is so many people got to the opportunity to watch it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it definitely uh, is the reason it is on the lists you mentioned is because of what it did after 1994, not the year uh, that it came out, not even close. Yeah, and it, what has made the film endure with audiences worldwide are the themes of the film. Uh, you know, of course, the big one being hope, but it it, it has a, a, a covers a, a, a wide array uh, of themes: uh, justice, time, oppression, friendship, redemption, freedom, patience, faith. You know, if you have hope, you have patience. You can find your place in the sun. That's great. Yeah, it's a. I mean. It really does encompass all of those themes and, 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 and better than any movie ever has, in my opinion. It's one of It's my difficult favorite. to make a film about hope, and, and, and Shawshank is remarkably effective at it. One way it has endured is the creation of what's called the Shawshank Trail. I don't know if you came across that. That goes through, I think, 15 or 16 locations in Ohio, uh, including the, the Ohio State Reformatory that most of the prison was shot at. Uh, as well as some other spots that were used. You can buy like pastries or bunt cakes that look like the prison. So it, there are several stops that you can go to to experience where this movie was shot uh, in Ohio. Yeah, they're capitalizing on it, uh, you know, for tourists. Uh, you even have the, the, you know, like you said, the red wines, uh, other little uh, merchandise that they've uh, named after the movie. Uh, you even have, you know, there, we talked about, uh, you know, the reformatory uh, where they there was a stand-in for the prison, but even probably one of the more iconic elements from the film is the oak tree, the symbol of hope. Well, uh, it, it was. 
Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, lightning split it in 2011, and it was uh, ultimately cut down in 2017, so it's no longer standing. And they took uh, what was left over from the tree, and they turned it into Shawshank rock cameras and magnets. Which, now that I know that, I want to get a Shawshank rock hammer. I mean, I'm sure they're sold out. <laughs> eh, probably, yeah. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of rocks on that yeah. wall there. And even the remaining parts of the prison is a tourist attraction, so uh, it, it it's put Mansfield, Ohio on the map. In 2014 and 2019, they held the 20th and 25th anniversaries of Shawshank Redemption in Mansfield, Ohio. Various cast members did attend, and Frank Darabont attended the one in 2019, the 25th anniversary himself. The Academy also hosted a 20th anniversary screening in Beverly Hills, California. So this film has aged like a fine red wine um, uh, and has become more beloved over time and is, and is still appreciated 25 years later. Absolutely. Yeah, it has definitely grown. Uh, the fondness for the film has grown uh, with each passing year. 523 spoofs, connections, and references with pop culture. It has cemented its place in the lexicon. Uh, Naked Gun 3, Duke Nukem the Video Game, Half-Baked, Scary Movie, Super Troopers, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Family Guy, and The Simpsons, just to name a few. Dear Red, if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to go a little further. You remember the name of the town in Mexico, right? Crap! What? Oh, oh, is that him? Is it? No, no, beach dog. Oh, 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 is that red? Is it? No, no, not him either. What the hell is that jag off? It's like 1200 bucks in that box. Oh my God, if he ran off with that. Oh, I am going to be so pissed. And what am I going to do? Go to the authorities? I just broke out of prison. Now what, I got to spend the rest of my life here by myself? Well, at least I won't have to be self-conscious about my farting. I don't know if there's been a movie that's met so much to so many people. And in 2015, it was inducted into the National Film Registry by the United States Congress. And Roger Ebert summed it up best, the Zen master of critics, when he said, quote, The Shawshank Redemption is not a depressing story. There is a lot of life and humor in it and warmth in the friendship that builds up between Andy and Red. There is even excitement and suspense, although not when we expect it. But mostly the film is an allegory about holding on to a sense of personal worth despite everything. If the film is perhaps a little slow in its middle passages, maybe that is part of the idea too, to give us a sense of the lead and passage of time before the glory of the final redemption, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at ReplayValuePod. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. We'll see you then. Bye.
This has been a Waldo Pickles production.